Good morning, everyone. If you will turn to Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I feel no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks out to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the themes of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Yeah, this is the word of the Lord. 
So we're continuing our series, Teach Us to Pray, out of the Psalms, because we're convinced, you guys, that we need to be in the Psalms because our goal as a community is to be deeply shaped by Jesus. And this begins with how we pray. So when we come to the Psalms, we're actually coming to Jesus's prayer book. This is how Jesus learned to read and to pray by praying these Psalms. And so we come to them going, Lord, teach us how to do this too. Teach us how to pray the right way. Because humans, we don't know how to do this thing called prayer very well. Um, we don't automatically know where to go. And so we're like, Jesus, we need your language to shape us. We need to be shaped by you. And so we have his prayer book. And so question, how's the 60-day challenge going for you guys? We started that last week. 60-day challenge, any of you? Awesome. Yeah, there's a bunch of hands. Um, we're praying through the whole book of Psalms as a church in 60 days. And so week one was good. If you missed the kickoff last week, that's okay. It's a great time to jump in. The schedule is on the website. This Tuesday, we're praying through this psalm, Psalm 22, which is all about praying through your pain. This is our focus today. Um, and at the same time, I want to acknowledge Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so Happy Mother's Day. Um, you uh, mothers are needed, loved, valued. We honor you and celebrate your influence in our lives in profound ways. We are more deeply shaped by our mothers than anyone. At the same time, you guys, real talk, Mother's Day can be a mixed bag for people. It's not the happiest day for everyone for many reasons. Maybe your mother's gone. I remember seeing my mother yesterday and being like, happy Mother's Day. She's like, yeah, kind of. Like her mother passed away. And there's relation, maybe there's relational pain for you. Or maybe there's heartache over your unanswered prayer to be a mother. And we, this right here, the family of Jesus acknowledges that. We honor every woman in the room. At the same time, we give space to acknowledge that mixed bag. It takes maturity to hold joy and pain together as a family. We acknowledge that. We want to be that mature family. Um, which is why the Psalms are so powerful. They are that mixed bag. The whole time. Half of the Psalms are lament. The other half is celebration. And they're often in the same Psalm. They don't wrap everything up in a nice little bow. It's real life. They give us prayer language for the complexity. And last week we, we started everything and we found out the Psalms don't filter emotion. It's all here in the raw. And at the same time, the Psalms don't give us any prayers that are just driven by emotion. Not one of them is overtaken by emotion. So there, there's this middle way, which is a way most of us didn't grow up with, where we're praying not driven by pain or, or the opposite. No, we're praying just through pain. That's, that's what the Psalms do. They pray us through our pain. They don't go around it. Um, this is about an intentional prayer life, you guys, where we're honest about the sources of what we feel and we're reminding ourselves that God is good and we invite his spirit to help us explore that paradox. So, so we're going to look at Psalm 22, but we have to prepare ourselves. If, if you've spent much time thinking about God, if you're a Christian or not, we all think about God in different ways. You've probably come to the great problem, right? The great dilemma. It's huge. Humans have been talking about it from the beginning. It's this contradiction, apparently. And they're really big things. It's like these can't go together. So on one hand, 
Christians believe in an all-powerful, all-loving God who's good all the way down. And we don't just believe this because it's a good idea and it makes us fuzzy inside. We believe it because we have thousands of years of history and scripture where God proves his goodness without fail, right? And on the other hand, (laughs) so we have God's goodness. And on the other hand, here's the tension. We have the news, right? And we have human, the horrors of human history and the chaos of tsunamis and earthquakes over cities and the rampant injustice in our world and racism. And we reflect on our own grief and loss. I think of a member of our church right now. She just lost a sibling in a tragic accident. And to make it worse, insult to injury, the details of this tragedy are still unclear and being investigated. Just that holding pattern of pain. And for her, about her sibling, there's this unbelievable sense of just how. Like we pray for traveling mercies or whatever. We pray for safety and then it's clearly not answered that day. What do you do with that? So on one hand, we hold God's goodness and on the other hand, we hold this feeling of how could this suffering go with it? And, and so we're left trying to bring that together and that's a source of pain in itself. So as humans, we're tempted to let go of, at that moment we let go. God's not really good or we change or we just abandon the idea of God or we tweak our theology and maybe God's actually behind our bad stuff and we're angry. You know what I mean? Because here's the deal. This isn't just some theology for a seminary classroom. This is part of the human experience, living in a world of pain. So right away comes the good news. Hopefully this sermon is a juggling match, (laughs) a mature holding of complex feelings. Here's the good news. The Psalms don't try to solve this problem intellectually. They know that doesn't work. Instead, half the Psalms are, are lament and protest. They flow out of this tension. God is good, life hurts, <laughs> and that tension's a form of pain itself. And the result is this prayer language of lament and protest. We don't deny, I feel abandoned by God. I'm real about that. And, and at the same time, we don't ditch. Instead, we pray through it. We pray through the pain. This is what Psalm 22 is all about. And it's one of the most famous Psalms because Jesus prayed it, right? I don't know if you heard it right away when Kimberly read the first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said that? Yeah, Jesus prayed that. In his moment of greatest suffering and abandonment by his friends and disciples, we find Jesus praying this line. This is where Jesus goes, so we follow Jesus, so we go where he goes. That's why we're in this psalm. So as we walk through this prayer, I want us to keep this big idea. Can you keep a big idea in your mind? And it's, it's this question. Think about when you suffer, maybe you're suffering now. What kind of prayers are you praying? When you're going through pain, what kind of prayers do you pray? Basically, like, help. <laughs> Usually, I mean, if, if, if you're anything like me or most humans, you're like, help. I love Anne Lamott's little book on the three kinds of prayer, the basic three. We, all our prayers are mostly help, thanks, and wow. I like that. Help, thanks, wow. And, and when we are hurting, we are crying out help. 
those are we have a we have a Christian churchy name for that called prayer requests, right? So we take prayer requests usually when we're at community. Well, let's end with prayer requests. But as we read through these 31 verses of Psalm 22, we're going to see that the requests are a tiny piece. They're only three verses of the 31. The first 18 verses are basically just observations about his own emotion. And that God has said that he's good. And there's no requests until finally verse 19 through 21. And you're like, okay, Evan, why is this important? This trivia? No, no. It's because we have a problem. When we go through hardship, our problem is we go into this mode. I don't know if you do. I do. And here's how it works in my head. It's three steps. Step one, well, God already knows how I feel. Step two, uh, he already knows the situation. And, And step three is, so I assume what I need to do is tell God exactly what he's supposed to do. And I make prayer requests. And that's our assumption. But this psalm flips it. It has the opposite assumption. Contrary to how we think when we suffer, Psalm 22 thinks like this. Number one, God knows exactly what to do. Come, deliver, rescue. Number two, God doesn't need help knowing what he should do. So number three, what I need to do is express to God what's happening to me and how I feel about it. Do you see the difference? How many of us pray like that? We go through something hard and that's our default mode. Not me. Not usually. This is the opposite of the natural prayer request mode. We usually assume, well, since God already knows, I really just need to... No, but biblical lament assumes the exact opposite. What God is actually most interested in hearing is me expressing how I'm processing my suffering and letting God know how I feel. The Psalms teach us and invite us to pray this way and be healed from this. This is healing, you guys. So let's work through the Psalm together. And as we do, think about a difficult time, maybe in recent past or maybe now. And... and and bring that experience to, to this prayer, if you can. Maybe treat this prayer like a fresh canvas and paint your experience on it. So first line, you ready? We're going to just walk through it. The first line is actually not, my God, my God. The first line is this little seemingly insignificant note that says, for the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning... A Psalm of David. I bet you're like, I thought that was a not Bible. No, that's actually original to the Bible text. That's not added by the NIV or whatever Bible you have. That's scripture. Uh, Does anyone know the tune, Doe of the Morning? No one does. If you don't, you're, you're with everyone. No one knows what tune this is. Why is this important? Why is this Bible? Because... The scriptures are inviting us to imagine thousands of years of individuals and communities singing a melody you will never know, and yet the emotion and pain is something all of us can relate to. Okay? This is the beauty of this psalm. It's not just about David. It's not just about Jesus on the cross. It's about anybody who has felt abandoned by God. This is your song. This is your tune. 
So with that, go to verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. What's What's the problem the psalmist is experiencing here? doesn't say. So again, this goes out to anyone who's felt that confusing sense of God's absence. No matter why, this is for you. This becomes your prayer right now. Maybe you're like, God, it's Mother's Day. A day people are supposed to feel especially cared for and loved, and I feel unheard, and I feel anxious. This is your psalm. And then it moves on to protest. In this next verse, the psalmist is like, God, aren't you on the throne? Look at verse three. Yet you're enthroned as the Holy One. You're the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. Verse five, to you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do you guys feel this? This is dripping with emotion. The psalmist feels subhuman. I'm a worm, he says. This person is diving into deep feelings of isolation. This is isolation. How many of you felt a little isolation last year? A little bit. The psalm is for you. Now the world is a community that's a little closer around this theme of isolation. We feel each other now, and we're still trying to recover. We're not recovering very quickly in our, if we're real, if we're honest with ourselves. Denial only works for so long. We feel isolated. My wife, Sandy, experienced this isolation in a profound way last fall with the loss of our baby and potential loss of her own life. Lonely nights for her in the hospital and because of regulations, not once of the nights after nights could I even see her except through FaceTime, which is a gift actually in this season. Um, That's a level of trauma for her that is really hard to grasp. I still don't grasp it. And because it's hard to grasp, we say silly things, right? If you've ever experienced deep tragedy, you know that people can be very well-meaning and and very just, you don't know, you just said that out loud. (laughs) Like, you shouldn't have just said. (laughs) And this is all of us, you guys. When we're with someone who's experiencing intense grief, we often don't know what to say, even when we want to talk to them. Tragedy is very isolating for that reason. The psalmist gives us prayer language for this. There's prayer language for this. And I know that Sandy is having a different kind of Mother's Day this year because of this. And the Psalms just lead us to pray through it. Not not pray around it, but to bring it all before God. They don't filter it. And they don't let it take us over. They teach us to pray right through it. Here's what he does. Verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. 
right there, you guys, is actually one of the most unique descriptions of God in the whole Bible. God is depicted as a midwife. Did you see that? You brought me out of the womb and laid me at my mother's breast. This person knows what it's like to be close to God. And so God is depicted as this maternal, motherly presence who's always been close. And now the psalmist is like, where are you? I've, I've felt you close in the past, and I'm not feeling that right now. This is gut-wrenching and personal. And maybe right now, some of you are slightly uncomfortable understandably so, you're like, I don't want to talk to God like this. I don't, or maybe you're like, I don't know if I'm allowed to. But there it is. This could be one of the most healthy things you do, is just lay out your grief honestly before God. Remember, complaining about God is a sin. Complaining to God is a psalm. And and keep reading, verse 12. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths against me. This is images of enemies, people betraying you, gossiping about you. Keep reading, verse 14. The psalmist is just gonna list his problems. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. This is an image of confusion, chaos. And then he says, my heart has turned to wax, It is melted in me, an image of fear. Verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, whatever that is, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. This is an image of exhaustion, no vitality. If you've ever experienced depression, he's describing that the the physical manifestation of it. And then verse 16, dogs surround me, more enemies. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. The people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothing among them and cast lots. You guys, this is an image of shame. And then while he's naked and exposed, people are closing in to take advantage of him. This is when they kick you when you're already down. You guys, the psalmist gives us language for prayer for all this stuff. And he brings these emotions to God. Okay. Wow. Everybody okay? This is heavy. You guys okay? This is intense. And then there's a shift. There's, there's two more shifts. Uh, this, here's one of them. The psalmist moves to prayer requests. There are a couple of them. Look at verse 19. He says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. There it is. That's the, that's the request. That's it. And the whole thing. He assumes it's way more important to God that he articulates his suffering and his pain. Way more important than prayer requests. Do we pray this way? I forget to most of the time. This is potentially life-saving for us. What if, what if instead of prayer request mode, we spend the majority of our time venting worshipfully? According to the Psalms, this is what we actually need as humans. I don't know how to do it well. I'd rather fill my prayers with requests 
and get everyone on the prayer chain and make sure everyone knows my need or whatever. Uh, Don't get me wrong. Prayer requests are good. But again, lament and protest should outweigh prayer requests if psalms are anything like a model for us. So what is, what is a protest? When we think of protest, what do you picture in your head? Crowds of people with streets and signs, right? Absolutely. Nonviolent public demonstrations can be part of healthy protest. We have to do that to stand in solidarity with the oppressed. 100%. Totally. But according to the Bible, you guys, those public demonstrations of protest, those alone are an incomplete picture. The complete picture, it begins with humans venting to God and from there moving out to do justice in the world. The complete picture of protest is the prayer room to the streets. That's the direction of biblical, of true protest. Remember what we said last week, lament in the Psalms, lament is complaining to the one who can actually do something about it. That's lament. So this is so important because here's why, you guys. Lament and protest, name it. They name the problem. We're not good at naming. We have to be intentional about naming our feelings and our pain because lament, it helps us. It calls out the conditions that keep us from flourishing the way God intends. We call out injustice. We call out death and grief and loss and betrayal and being lied to. Lament names that stuff and brings them into God's presence where the Holy Spirit and the Bible and community can name them along with us. And that's how we get healed. That's part of our healing. So I'm not a therapist, you guys, not by any stretch. But in my experience with a a decent therapist and talking to counselors, this is so important because when we go through trauma, there are things that happen inside of us that we don't even get. We can't even correctly name this stuff without help. We get all tweaked and misaligned and we don't even know how to talk about it. And Psalms like this are the Bible's way of inviting us to process. This isn't therapy. This is just Bible. We are whole human beings. And these Psalms are human words of pain to God and they become God's words to us to show us how to pray them back. And it's this beautiful circle of communication that heals us. So God's inviting us into this to name what's wrong and to draw attention to it. And we all have things we can name. Maybe we're struggling with trusting leadership after last year. Trusting authorities. Um, Fear of fill in the blank. Lost relationship that we don't know how to really deal with. Health, finance, insecurity issues. All of this, Psalm 22 is calling us to hold, remember, hold that tension. Like, I don't, I, I don't know how God's goodness and my suffering fit. And it's really messing me up to think about. This is lament, that tension. It's not wallowing. It's honestly pouring out our hearts. So I don't know your story, but uh, so I don't know what it would look like for you. But this is what half of the Psalms are doing. And we're not even done talking about lament in this series. Uh, Tanika Wyatt right here is going to be preaching in June on Lament, she's going to be unpacking it further for our community. But, but here's something that happens. And here's the corner. We're turning the corner here. I want you to notice the shift in verse 22. After the psalmist, he vents his emotions, he makes requests. All of a sudden, it turns to praise. This is very common in the psalms. 
all but one do this shift. Psalm 88 is really dark and it ends dark. But all the rest, they do this. Look at verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Whoa, that's a new tone. That's a new melody. The shift from naming and protesting to praise and hope. And this is what we're supposed to do. He says, in the assembly. Where are you guys right now? You're in the assembly. We're supposed to do this. We're supposed to go to the temple and share our story of answered prayer. This is what the psalmist is saying. Look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I'll fulfill my vows. This is lifting your hands and eating and drinking the bread and the cup. This is what this is, you guys. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. And I love this line. May your hearts live forever. Uh, That's two words in Hebrew. It's like bottoms up. This is the cheer. This is a full-on moment where they raise their glasses. This is a community meal, you guys. This is a community feast in response to answered prayer. I don't know how many of us have a practice for this, like a ritual for celebrating when God answers prayer after he brings you through suffering. Do you do that? Is there a a place you go or a community meal you have? This is what's meant to happen in our communities. Uh, You know you are living in authentic spiritual community when people are so deep into your struggle with you that they want to throw a legit feast when God brings you out of it. Do you have a practice for this? We need to. We all do. This is one of the reasons we say Park Hill communities are the nerve center of our church because... Communities are intended to feel together. And I know at the beginning of joining a community, uh, <laughs> the only feeling you might have is awkward, you know? Like the first six months, like, oh man, I, it's, just, it's just not breaking open. That, that, that eggshell is pretty thick. Um, that means you're normal, right? It takes time and intentionality to grow thick relationships. But after that initial phase, you guys, you find out, guess what? Community is still hard, (laughs) but it's so worth it because it's the only place we weep with other people about unanswered prayer and find healing from wounds and celebrate answered prayer. It's the only place it all happens is in community. In the psalmist's words, in the great assembly, I will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him bottoms up. Cheers. May your hearts live forever. We need this. We need community to be be a place of spiritual practicing of celebration. And then finally, the psalm ends in full-on worship. This is the goal. This is the bullseye of your prayer life is worship. Here it is. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. The rich and the poor, you guys. The Psalms lead us to a place of such massive trust in God's goodness that not even death can get in the way of his purposes. It says the rich will feast and the dead will worship, both. 
This is how far-reaching God's goodness actually is. And then he ends by saying, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They'll proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he's done it. This is, this is the direction of all the lament psalms. So, so we're left with this picture. Yeah, we're left with this picture of all generations, young and old, rich and poor, dying and thriving. We're left with them all. And this picture is all the suffering they've experienced and all the answered prayer through suffering. We're all bringing our stories about that to this feast. All of our stories about God meeting us in pain and bringing us through in different ways and how God met us there. We're all bringing it to this final drink and meal. And that's Psalm 22. That's the picture. That's how to lament. You guys, it's complex. (laughs) We want to divide up the psalm in two halves because we got the dark beginning and the bright ending. But the invitation is to mix them up because that's how life really works. That takes maturity, emotional maturity and health to be able to hold the grief and the future hope together in the same place. So before we come to the table, look back at that first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My guess is we're not all in the same place of maturity here. And so that first half of the psalm resonated with you. I know it does me. My temptation is to go like, man, that first half, I resonate way more with that than the second half because I don't like pain. I really don't like pain. I'm an anagram seven, and I guess my worst fear is pain, they tell me, or whatever. Um, so how many of you feel like that first half is like, oh yeah, that really, that's real, or whatever? Yeah, that might be for a couple reasons. Number one, some of you might be sitting in pain right now, in living through pain. Or what can be sometimes worse, you're watching a loved one have to do that and go through it. And you're like, what do I do? I'm stuck in the first half of Psalm 22. I'm making requests and I'm venting. What if I can't ever get out? What if my life ends and I never make it to the second half? This is where the picture of Jesus hanging on a cross is so powerful for us, you guys. When you read the stories of Jesus on the cross, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read them all, you find at least 20 different mentions of Psalm 22, connecting what Jesus is experiencing to specific words and moments in Psalm 22. Like the cries, Jesus' cries of distress And people mocking him, insulting him, the dehydration even, the piercing of his hands, even gambling over his clothing, and the fact that Jesus spoke the opening line, obviously, too. So what's, what's going on here? Listen, it's not just about the psalmist predicting the cross. It's more than that. What Jesus and the gospel writers are doing is they're showing you how Jesus is gathering up all the suffering of his ancestors and identifying with it. And and Jesus is saying, hey, if your life ends 
in the first half of Psalm 22, in the dark half, if your life ends before resolution, then you're in good company. The great paradox of Psalm 22, God becomes God forsaken. God doesn't just look at you and see your pain and go, oh, I'm so sad for you. He doesn't just sympathize, he identifies. And he enters into your pain. So what this means for us as Christians, you guys, because Jesus went into suffering for us, we can pray the first dark half of this prayer, even though we may never see the second half in this life. Jesus didn't see part two until after he died, which is actually the gospel, you guys, because three days later, Jesus did experience the second half. God raised Jesus from the dead. And so listen, as I make my confession, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or even if you are, and you haven't confessed his lordship over your life, um, in your deeds, in your practice, in your community life, then the call today is to do that. And when you confess that Jesus is Lord, you are confessing what is true of Jesus will be true of me. Yes, Jesus suffered, so yes, I will suffer. Yes, God raised Jesus from the dead, and yes, God will raise me from the dead with Jesus. Because as a child of God, what's true of me is what was true of Jesus. What happened to him will happen to me. And the reality is, we may experience some of that answered prayer now. We may experience none of that answered prayer now. But either way, we will experience it fully together in the new creation, in the resurrection. And so today, what's important is this journey of tension. Are we willing to be a community that grows in maturity to hold the dark and light together and to acknowledge the complexity? We're going to respond to God through singing now. Feel free, like Drew and Allie and Florence, to come up and, and start leading us. We're going to sing and as we sing, we hold all of these emotions together. We don't, we don't separate it. We don't deny it. We don't run past it. And we don't get overwhelmed by it either. We acknowledge this is our story. All the rich, all the poor will bow before the Lord who entered our suffering, and he will bring us out of it. He will bring you out of it. We pray soon. That's why the main prayer of the Old Testament is not like, God, fix it. No, it's how long, O Lord? That's the main prayer. All through the scriptures, how not like, why, God? Because there is no why. There's no intellectual answer that satisfies. The Bible doesn't give the why. The Bible assumes that God knows the why and moves straight to the how long. Can that be where we push for by the power of the Spirit? How long, Lord? So that's our story. And so we come to the bread and cup focusing on Jesus the moment he cried this prayer. So if you've never called out to God in faith, why not let today be the day? We're going to do baptisms again, June 5th. On Sunday, June 5th, we will hold baptisms right here on the promenade. And anybody who wants to identify with Jesus and his family and join the kingdom and live forever and experience the ending of Psalm 22 sooner or later, Anyone who wants to join this family is more than welcome. 
What's required? This one word is trust. God requires your trust. Faith isn't just agreement with a bunch of doctrines. Faith is like trust in a spouse. And, and, and a lifelong covenant with a spouse requires fidelity. And guess what? God is the most faithful being you can possibly imagine, worthy of your trust, worthy of bringing you from Psalm 22, verse 1, all the way to Psalm 22, verse 31. He will do it. He's covenanted himself to do that for you. The question is, do you trust him? And if you've been a Christian forever, if you've been in the church forever, and maybe your trust has faltered, God's like, hey, that's, that's okay. You're, you're here today listening. Do you trust me today? You can renew that vow, so to speak. And so before we come to the table, calling a bit of an audible right now, uh, but before we come to the table, I'm going to invite whoever wants to just pray fresh trust in God. Just pray fresh trust. Again, maybe you've never been a Christian or you've been one a long time. There's going to be some leaders up front on my right and left. They would love to hear you just speak your trust in God and just thank God for speaking to your heart today. Just pray for you. Allow us the joy of praying for you as we speak our trust to God together that he'll bring us through. So feel free right now. If that's you, Yeah, if that's you, feel free to stand. Awesome. Just renew your trust in God. Renew your trust that he is who he says he is. Yeah, there's a couple of you there. Awesome. Praise God. Let's celebrate that desire. 